Welcome to the Picture of Wealth, a podcast all about living more of your life now, yet being responsible for your future. Lifestyle experimenter, wealth scientist, and financial coach Dustin Service shares life hacks, wealth tips, and interviews successful entrepreneurs on how they're thriving in happiness, purpose, and prosperity. I'm not sure what words describe my next guest, but I would say tennis stud. Bigger than life, Pierre LaMarche. Now, don't be fooled by my nonchalant first comments. And Pierre's rap sheet looks a little bit like former national head coach of Team Canada and Tunisia, former Davis Cup player, former Davis Cup, Fed Cup captain, Atlantic Olympic tennis, Canadian team leader, former Canadian junior and men's national champion, Tennis Canada Hall of Fame, Rogers Hall of Fame, and City of Burlington Hall of Fame inductee. So no shortage of tennis accolades. And now, or for a number of years, uh, Pierre has been a great coach and mentor to many of Canada's top tennis stars. And this discussion is around doing things a little different from a retirement standpoint in, you know, Pierre lived life to the max. He swung for the fences and it, it worked out. You know, Pierre is now 75. He lives half-time in the Dominican Republic and half-time in Toronto. But I'll let you be the judge for yourself if you think you could have taken this approach because all, you know, behind all the live life now, you know, raw, raw, raw stuff that you hear me promote, Pierre gets real in the podcast on the price uh, one's body and mind can take and what he learned and what he would have potentially done different. I'm excited to share this podcast with you. I introduce Pierre LaMarche. So, uh... The one thing that I did find, you have a Twitter account uh, and you've got a surfing picture. Is that is that current or is that like a couple of years ago? In uh, 1965, uh, no, when I was 65, I came back from Taiwan and uh, I got a tattoo put on my arm that I saw. I was teaching at the university there and it was uh, written in Chinese letters. <laughs> that the key to success is determination and perseverance. So I had that done and I decided I wanted to have one of those experiences, you know, that always in your life you wanted to have. So uh, I thought about rock climbing, mountain climbing, but shit, you can get cold and, you know, fall down and, oh my God. Then I thought about surfing. God, you go to the beach and the waves don't seem that bad. And all the girls are there. I mean, I'm like, wow, this is it. So somehow I got a, this fella from Germany who's a, remained a good friend and who was instrumental in me meeting Cassiris because it's his wife that introduced me. I was in the water and I was, you know, drowning. I got... I was just like out of shape, everything 65. And he came by on his paddle board and he said, you know, can I help you? I said, if you're Marcus, you can help me. And he was. So we went back to the beach and we struck up a friendship, which was very, very interesting. He's German. Uh, he had been living here for 30 years. He had worked for Red Bull. He had uh, was a professional kite surfer and so forth. And uh, uh, his way of living was whatever money he had in his pocket, 
was gone by that night. Never had a bank account. He was one of the happiest guys. And it just reminded me of when I was in my 20s and I was free and everything else and how much of life I had lost by having to worry so much about money, having worried so much about responsibilities. And it gave me a second life. So uh, I came and here for 10 weeks. And about after week six, I finally got up on the board and everybody on the beach just went, yeah, you know, I mean, you know, how surfers are, you know, it's, so everything was great. I became a cult hero because at 65, I learned how to surf. And I took that picture and I put it everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Just to piss off all the people that thought I was going to die. <laughs> you know, well, you definitely bring up, a, it'd be interesting to have that that coach on the, on the podcast of, uh, you know, that just that freedom to live and not worry about RSPs, not worry about, you know, money and being so responsible. And, and that's, you know, I, I've always respected that about you and sort of the, the outlook and, you know, we've crossed paths over decades of, you know, just what are we doing today? What's going on today? Uh, you know, and, and how you just bring that presentness, if that's even a word to, to life, because we get, it's all consuming. And now, you know, it's, even the way the media delivers up information, we're all consuming of things that don't really apply to us, yet we make it about us. So it's, it's you know, it's funny because all my life I was not a good father. When I say I was not a good father, financially I was in trouble all the time because being French Canadian, you know, I thought Cadillacs were RSPs, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> it was good value there. It's good, you know. It's- so you know like uh, and I I was married three times before so when you split everything by 53 times you're not left with lots and you have three kids that go on to college and uh, you know I had to refinance my house to pay my staff and it took you know I went I had to work and uh, uh, I was very selfish because if I was not selfish I would not have made it. And, uh, you know, I went through depressions because the the biggest fear is that my children would have to take care of me in my old age. And that's right. something I certainly did not want. And uh, that my kids would not have an education or would not have the opportunity to, you know, to be. And, you know, I knew that I was lucky because... You know, I was, I became a pretty good tennis player and, you know, I had a business degree, so I could translate that into money, but the road, you know, from being fired when I was in Quebec city to not being able to work in Quebec anymore, to coming to work for the mafia in Ontario. I mean, it's been a long, having been let go by tennis Canada, having to go to Tunisia to work for two years, you know, them not paying me the $30,000 at the end and having to, you know, like all of those things, I, I really uh, struggle with making, keeping sanity. And a, a lot of it was with abuse. 
you know, abusive, whether it was drugs, whether it was alcohol, whether it was relationships, because the only thing I had to do was I worked all day and I had to do a quick turnaround to do it again the next day. And I just could not stay in that. So it took me, you know, I was really my battery. I was exhausted and everything else. And when I met this guy, <clears throat> I started going back to see, you know, what was important and things have worked out great. My kids are great. You know, I met Cyrus who lives for today, doesn't worry about money. You know, she says to me, Pierre, don't worry. If we don't have any money, I'll just go and work. You know, and I'm oh, okay, you know, and I can, yeah, that's good, you know. And so we're right now, we're buying a house in uh, Cabarete. And, you know, so I'm very, very thankful. But I think I'm very lucky. A lot of people don't have the chances, don't have, whether it's my personality, you know, pain in the ass or my perseverance or things that come. And that's where, you know, somebody like your father and, you know, we're so different, him and I, but, you know, like I have, you know, he, he makes me laugh, you know, like he just, yeah. I mean, the way he is, you know, and that's wow. And he's right there. And I'm like, God almighty, look at that. But, you know. I, it's the heart that you look at, you know, and you look, you look at my kids, they have great hearts and I've got great friends and, you know, Tommy is just, you know, like he's one of those guys, he'll give you whatever, you know, he has to help you, you know, but, you know, you have to make sure, you know, you, you rinse your beer bottle after you finish. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we get, uh, yeah, I would say that we get more odd the older we get, you know, there's sort of a peak of coolness and then uh, you sort of, you know, you know, it, you get more set in your ways as you get older. And, uh, you know, I know you got lots of stories that we probably can't talk about on the podcast, but uh, thank you for that sort of interlude of, you know, live life for the, the, the today, but you know, you, you know, I've got a, a, a thing up on my screen from a, you know, it's August 13th, 1979, a doubles match that you were playing. Uh, it looks like Yuri Herbeck and Pavel Slosel. Do you remember this? Uh, I think at York University, if I'm that, not mistaken. Okay. Is that where it uh, it is? So, you know, going back, so 1979, you would have been how old? 1979, 80, that's 40. Uh, 42 years ago and I'm 75. So 30 something, you know, you know, so, yeah. so 30 year ago, uh, Pierre, you know, would you have thought, you know, when, when you're back then and retirement was probably a word that was used is it was, are you living what you thought it would be? Or did you think, you know, retire, were you working hard, you know, playing tennis, doing all the stuff that, you know, you're doing all of that back then for this life in the future, or did you even kind of put those two things together? Or were you really so present back then that it just wasn't a thought? You know, um, I did not have the convenience or the ability to think long-term so much. I was more caught in the survival mode of a day-to-day, -day. uh, I had ended up in Ontario because of a lawsuit that I had in Quebec against uh, the indoor club uh, that I was working with, where your father used to play with me. And uh, 
uh, I could not, when I did that lawsuit, said to me that I could not get a job in another club in Quebec. So I ended up coming to work in uh, Toronto and uh, starting all over again. I remember clearly uh, I was interviewed by three gentlemen who a year later I saw on uh, the, um, uh, sorry, uh, that I saw in a white paper on CBC as being major players in the Hamilton family. These guys were great to me. Uh, they interviewed me and finally uh, I took over the position with uh, the caveat that I had complete control. And uh, the first thing I did was uh, I fired the general manager and the head coach took three quarters of the salary and they thought I was brilliant because I saved them $25,000 right from the start. So that's how that worked. And uh, for me, uh, I always, I was a spender. I always lived the right way. I always wanted to, today to have the things. I never really thought about saving money, uh, which uh, I regret, but uh, I, I don't regret the enjoyment that I had in my life, but it did right. create uh, issues. And I was able to manage my knowledge of the tennis business, which was quite simple. Uh, I looked at wherever there's a tennis court, you know, I can make money from a tennis court. So in other words, it's, you know, you teach your, and I say that to my staff all the time. It's, you know, teaching how to fish rather than the fish. So, you know, you see a tennis court, you go, okay, what can I do here? And it's not just about making money, but, you know, you look across our country and you look at the number of public courts that are empty. Why? Because people don't have anybody to play with because they don't have somebody to teach them how to play. Uh, they play with one person, that person goes away, they don't have somebody else. So the servicing of public facilities was, is horrible. And of course, the, the problem that you have is municipalities don't want to do business with the private sector because they're afraid the private sector is going to make money. You know, it just does not make sense. It's one of those things that drives me crazy in business in Canada because we have millions of dollars in Toronto, for example, in tennis courts, there's not enough tennis clubs for people, but nobody goes to the tennis courts. And then the municipality says, well, you know, nobody plays on them, but they don't play because they're not service. So we have all these resources in this great country that are not being utilized. You know, I always look at maximizing resources. So when I started in the indoor business, I started with clubs that were in difficulty. The interest rates went up to 18 percent. A lot of them uh, got in trouble. And the Mortgage Insurance Company of Canada, who insured the majority of these uh, uh, mortgages, were left with a bunch of clubs. So they hired me. And uh, basically, uh, I used my knowledge and my name as a tennis coach to uh, be able to use courts that were not being used. So in the indoor facilities at six in the morning, you know, like if figure skaters can go two a day, <laughs> if swimmers could do two a days, and in those days our figure skaters and the swimmers were very successful. 
So, you know, why not do the same thing with tennis? So I started tennis schools that would go then in the morning and then in the afternoon from two to five. So, you know, even if a tennis court, you know, was selling for $20, if uh, the owner could make $10, you know, he'd be very happy from those times. And then I took the other part, which was weekends and ran tournaments. So I just used always a formula that added because you can't really reduce in any business when you take over, you can't reduce expenses by more than 10%. So how do you do it? You know, recruiting kids, you recruit families and it was a concept that worked. So uh, that's how I got started in the business. And the more money I made, the more I had to pay back from before. And not only that, the way to succeed was always having good human resources and good human resources. You have to pay them. And some of them I could pay. And I, but if you look across the country, I probably have 20 coaches that are in head positions like the Shaughnessy tennis club, uh, Winston Payne, uh, who developed the uh, tennis facility in, uh, up near Kelowna, Uh, you know, right across Canada. So a lot of these people that were very, very good became too big for our company. So, you know, it was, it's always been, it's not like a huge moneymaker. Plus for years, we used to provide about $200,000 in scholarships for players that would come in because those players would come in, make the program better and would bring other people. Mm. So, but, you know, uh, it ended up all okay. And, uh, you know, um, now uh, we find ourselves, unfortunately, our best uh, producing club, uh, Toronto Tennis City, is right in the middle of uh, downtown Toronto or midtown Toronto. And uh, the land for five tennis courts was just sold for $52 million. Mm. So, uh, of course, they own the, the land? The person who had given me uh, the lease told me 10 years ago that at any time it could happen. So we had 10 years of great performance, except the last two years, of course, because COVID really hurt us and uh, we were lucky to break even. We kept all of our management team on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like a family. I've got over 30 coaches and those people are very committed. So I what feel... What does a, a good, only because I'm a, a, a business student and, and I'll find all the different businesses very interesting. What is a good, well-run club? Like, what do the financials look like? Is it as simple as like a gym membership? You got members, you got dues, and you got staff. Is that kind of it? It depends. It depends on the type of club. You have community clubs, which of course are subsidized and so forth, don't have to pay any taxes. Then you have uh, private for-profit clubs, which are Mm. the ones that I'm involved with. And those are being hard hit because the land that they're on is much more valuable. So you've seen the closure of clubs across the country. And then you have the ridiculous clubs like the Toronto Lawn and uh, I'm sure Shaughnessy and all of these clubs that you have across the country where... The members, Vancouver Lawn and so forth, Jericho, where the members have put in so much money and, you know, so 
those clubs run on, it's a different uh, operation altogether. As it's like a a high net worth kind of, or, you know, you're not a high net worth, but it's just private. It's for profit for the membership and for a certain type of person that wants to pay and contribute. Well, they, they keep the money in and improve the facility, you know, so it makes the initiation fee. Uh, the ones I've worked with have been private clubs. I've got more of a personality that, you know, uh, fits in with a, uh, a corporate club so that, you know, it's people, it's like a gym place, you know, so yeah. you don't have to be so nice and diplomatic, which <laughs> I haven't been known to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, just kind of on that vein of, uh, you know, keeping the peace. Uh, one of, my observations was you played doubles, you coach people to play doubles in tennis. And I draw parallels between, you know, two tennis players that are playing on the same team are like two spouses with wealth. So, you know, if, if partners are working together, then you're going to get the results that you want. So can you, you give me a, you know, for all my tennis listeners, you know, when you're playing doubles, is there any sort of, you know, top three secrets you could share of like, you know, what, what are the the fundamentals, you know, a fundamental secret. And then, you know, for playing top level doubles tennis, what, what things should people be doing to, to get, you know, the win? Well, uh, it's funny that you asked because I was fortunate to have as my head coach in Davis cup, Louis Cahier, who's world renowned, uh, as a doubles uh, expert. In fact, uh, uh, he left Canada and went to work for the English Tennis Association and became very close friends with Andy Murray's mother, mother, Judy Murray. And Judy Murray's son, uh, the other one, uh, became number one in doubles. And in fact, now England went from having zero players to... um, seven in the top 100 in doubles. And uh, uh, the one thing that I know about Louis is contrary to me, where for me it would be emotions, it would be an integration of the personality. For him, it's all very intellectual. It's analytics. This is what you're doing. This is what you do. You know, so in other words, uh, there's a certain... A tactical way of playing that you know you shouldn't know, uh, and it depends, of course, on the type of players that you are on your team. So, doing an inventory of what your skills are and what are the best ways to cover your weaknesses and use your strengths is the best way to play. Uh, the second, of course, it's like uh, uh, you know a marriage. You know, you must take responsibility for anything that happens. If you try to shift the responsibility to the other person, he might be right, but you lost because it's over. So, right. you know, uh, I've even had uh, uh, a team that's won a grand slam, which was uh, uh, they eventually uh, broke up because one, one of the players was a perfectionist and he could hit eight great shots in a row and then miss one and he'd suddenly go into a funk. And right. his partner uh, uh, could not uh, handle that. And I remember him coming in a Davis Cup match and 
they'd started the match sailing side by side because they didn't want me to intimidate the one that was weaker and the way he thought. But halfway through the match, the guy would put me in the middle and say to me, geez, I'm never going to play doubles with this guy again. So, you know, like, <laughs> oh, goodness. So I, I, I think that, uh, you know, understanding the game of doubles, uh, understanding your partner and, you know, how to work with each other and supporting. I mean, you know, the synergy you get from a team that is on the same wavelength is completely, you can, you can have two guys that are bad, but if they're on the same wavelength, they can overcome. I mean, these are the old principles of war, you know, from Sun Tzu. So, <laughs> do, do you have any stories that you remember of like really seeing a great doubles match in action and, and a big win at a big tournament where they, you know, rose to the occasion at the time they needed to um, and just sort of what energy they had uh, or that even you had and you guys all shared that moment together? Well, you know, I think that uh, the first time we qualified for the world group and we hadn't qualified, I think, in 70 years for the world group. This was in 1991. And I remember being named Davis Cup captain by Robert Bettauer, who runs uh, PISA the, uh, and is involved with Bear Mountain uh, okay. in, uh, outside of Victoria. Victoria yeah. uh, I went out and ran around York University, the center court, and I said, one day I'm going to win a big match here. And uh, uh, the... Uh, we played Holland, who at the time was very good. And uh, as Davis Cup captain, I had uh, the clause, which nobody has anymore, of being able to select the location and the players and keep my earring in the time, which was, they asked me to take out. As soon as they asked, as soon as they asked me to take, Robert asked me to take it out. After he gave me the job, I said, I was going to do it. But now that you've asked me, I've got to keep it for a year. You know, like it's got yeah. to be on my terms. So <laughs> we played hard. Earrings are, are not as cool today as they were before, but I, <laughs> maybe in the younger generation. I haven't seen, yeah. I haven't found that picture yet. I, I'm going to go look for that. <laughs> we played Holland. We had a very good team. And uh, uh, my friend, Harry Fouquier, who was kind of my mentor and has always been and was kind of my coach when I played. He was uh, quite a great player, like Ken Rosewall at center court at Wimbledon. Uh, he used to do the courts, and we had uh, a center court. So I, it was September, and everybody wanted to play indoors. And I said, no, 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 I've got the vision. We're playing here at York University. And it was freezing cold. And the coach from uh, Holland was uh, from one of the Dutch colonies. And I always remember he was sitting in his chair with a fur coat, you know, like so. But uh, uh, Mitch Abada and Connell, uh, who were our top doubles team, uh, played uh, uh, the two Dutch players, Harhus, who's now the captain of the Dutch team, which is playing against Canada, I think, this weekend or something like that. And uh, they were a very, very good team. And... Uh, as we had decided initially that when the ties won all, the team that wins the doubles 
wins 80% of the ties. So we built our whole uh, strategy baseline to excellence on uh, being able to win the doubles, uh, hoping that we'd win one out of the two first match and then that 80% was on our side. And that's how we became a tennis power way, way back then. It was uh, uh, Louis Cahier who designed, you know, our doubles team. And so we beat them in that doubles. And I always remember, I knew that this was it, you know, that we would get, uh, we not that we were sure, but we had a great chance of winning if we could win that doubles. And uh, we ended up uh, winning that doubles and it was a great feeling. And when we won the tie, it was one of the greatest feeling. Grant Connell won an unbelievable match. I don't know if you know of Grant. He's lived in West Van and uh, he had a serious injury. He had a stroke about uh, uh, 18 months ago or two years ago. And uh, it was a very, very good player. And I remember him playing. It was so cold. And in the middle of the fifth set, against Kubermans, he looks at me, he says, look at my dad, he's cold up there. Can you take my jacket? And, you know, like here we are in the middle of the most important thing ever. And, you know, that's the type of guy he was. So you have all these memories. I just finished talking to him this past weekend and we were laughing so much because we hadn't, he has five kids and uh, got himself in trouble with COVID because, uh, he had more than 10 kids in the backyard uh, for a party during COVID. And the police came and he went and saw the judge and he says, I've already got five kids, two cars. We have five cars. My <laughs> wife and I, you know, like that's a lot of people to start off with. <laughs> but uh, no, that was doubles is, uh, you know, a team, a teamwork. And uh, that's what it's all about. If you don't have, if you're not in sync with your uh, partner, and you can have, there was some, there was a team of Hewitt McMillan, who was from South Africa, played for South Africa. One of them was Australian. They were day and night, but they complemented each other on the court. And there was a certain respect about how one is and the other. So, so as, as, a, as a person who enjoys random tennis, but doesn't really understand that the deep intricacies, when... When you say polar opposites, what what does that mean? Like in a game setting, the two players. Oh, you have one. You have one that's a straightforward, tough nut, uh, Australian redneck, and then and you does have, that mean yeah. he just he hits hard and everywhere, or is he, it like he hits everything? He fights. He just argues. He argues with the referees. I mean, like you know, he's like. Uh, in the peanut commercial, the guy, or the peanut comic strip, you know, the guy that's uh, uh, always got the wind around him, you know? Yeah, and I he, can't remember the guy that, uh, McMillan was like kind of the violinist, you know, he just touching everything else, you know? But uh, they were like, you know, fire and ice. And uh, that's what I mean by polar Does, off. In, in tennis, like, is, it, uh, is it like any sport where you have some players that are, gifted with the hands and placement and can, you know, tire their opponents by moving them back and forth. And then there's other people that can just hit really hard and fast, or is today's, you know, top notch player, they do it all. They know when to slow it down, when to speed it up. Or is it, is there still kind of like in hockey, it was the goons and then, you know, the, 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 the snipers. So 
is it that divided anymore or is it hard to tell those two players apart? Well, you know, you, you always have the players that are talented, that have coordination skills that are exceptional. Uh, either they move fast, they have unbelievable hands. But in this day and age, you always have to look at the assets and the constraints in a player. So, you know, if you have great hands, or like in my case, when I played, uh, you know, I was big and, you know, I was not a uh, uh, twinkle toes on the court. So I played north-south, you know, like there was only one thing. I I always remember my coach, Harry Folke, who I talked to you about. Uh, I phoned him from Mexico and I said, you know, my backhand passing shot's not working. And he said, Pierre, he says, when the ball comes to your backhand, you should catch it and put it in your pocket and tell your opponent, I'm sorry, I was at the wrong place on the court. He <laughs> says, because that's not where you're supposed to be. Ah. You know? <laughs> so, you know, like, so I always remember, I mean, that stayed with me forever, you know, and, uh, you know, just getting there at the net, you know, and I was a goalie. So, you know, I played the net like a goalie and I could anticipate. I was very good at anticipation. I move not fast, but I move very well because I always could anticipate where from what I did, what was going to happen the next time. Yeah. So there's so many, there's so many components uh, to uh, that, uh, uh what happens now is really nobody has major weaknesses because the game, you know, you cannot, if you get to a certain level and you have a, a major weakness, you can't make it because people will prey on it and that's it. So what you have is you have people that are strong everywhere, but you have some people that are, you know, they have game style that match what they have. For example, Nadal is just unbelievable. Uh, you look at Nadal and, you know, when he started, he didn't volley and he didn't hit any slices. And, uh, you know, Federer, you know, decided, OK, I'm going to chip short to Nadal's forehand so that Nadal has to come to the net. Well, Nadal went back and learned how to volley. So now, you know, now he volleys, he, you know, so Medvedev. When he played Nadal recently, Medvedev likes to stand way, way back. Well, suddenly you saw Nadal becoming a drop shot artist. You know, right. and like, so, you know, but he's, it's, he doesn't have the hands. He's just done so many, you know, that, so, that, like, you look at Djokovic, who's like, whew, I mean, the guy is so strong, so tough. But what they have in common is the mental. I mean, you have, you know, it's like, you're there for four and a half hours and you just, you know, yeah, you can have a low dip, but you, you don't stay in that dip for long or else they just come through the door and smack you. Right. So, you know, and it, and that's where the matches ebb and flow because, you know, your energy level goes up and down and it's very hard to maintain and physically. So, you know, these guys, I mean, tennis has really, really uh, become a sophisticated sport. When I used to play, you know, people used to go out and party and everything else, you know, and you still, you can't do that now. You know, can you imagine having to play two weeks in a row, you know, of the win a Grand Slam? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a task that's almost impossible to do and to maintain. So that's why the sport is uh, 
uh, you know, so interesting and is growing so much. Well, I just had uh, on the podcast Wade Redden, who's uh, you know a retired Ottawa Senator and a Ranger and NHL player, and he said, you know, back in the day when we used to you know do training camp or you know summer training was basically switched to Bud Light. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one one thing that uh, I think about in uh, in in the in the training of the people, and you've you've seen the students. Uh, you got a couple of successful traits that these people have, you know, the, the students that have kind of got the quickest adoption or, or you, you know, you're, this is the most improved player in, in your camps or, you know, people that you've coached uh, that, that have excelled the fastest. So what, what is it that they do? Is it, um, is it specifically tennis? Is it energy management? You know, what, what would give someone who's learning how to play better tennis some key things to, to focus on to excel the fastest? Well, let's say we take somebody that has qualities to become a tennis player. I think that's the most important. So let's start with that. So I think that first one is perseverance, you know, is knowing. I mean, if you play tennis, you lose 48, 49% of the points. So, like, if you don't know how to handle getting, you know, knocked in the head, you're in trouble. Right. So you've got to have the ability to evaluate what just happened and move on from it. You linger in the past, you know. That's why I have very low patience, even in my work, with people that, you know, are not in the right place. Whatever the situation is, okay, let's fix it. You know, like, what are the solutions? Don't tell me why we're there. Don't tell we're there. What can we do now? You know, and, uh, you know, and let's put all of our energies, you know, oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. What do you mean we can't do? Let's just think and brainstorm and see, you know, if we brainstorm enough, we'll find a solution somehow that makes sense. So it's having, I think, perseverance, having somebody that's willing to, uh, Keep on day after day. I, I always remember, you know, one of my best friends, um, Carlos Kiermaier, who used to coach Seb, uh, Gabriella Sabatini, who won the U.S. Open. And you know, it was always, you know, the sun always rises the next day. So, you know, you just get on. And in fact, one of the things when I used to play, as soon as I had a loss, I did everything I could to forget about the loss, get out of town, hope the whole tournament would get bombed. And, you know, my boss would not count, you know, but, you know, I just get on to the next city. So, like, why linger and worry? I mean, nobody's ever made it through, you know, through that part. So perseverance is one. Two is, you know, you want somebody that's stubborn to be persevered. So that has that ability. But you want somebody that intellectually uh, is capable of working with somebody that can guide them. And uh, I think of tennis players, of the good tennis players that I've coached, as wild stallions. And, uh, you know, the wild stallions, you see that they have the skills and everything else. But till you break them and you work together, you're not much of a team. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how stubborn or how uh, dedicated the player is, if he's not going down the right decision. Uh, direction, you know, then uh, he's wasting 
his energy and he's not maximizing the time that he's putting into his, you know, his skills development. And, you know, I, I think uh, uh, the, the most important thing at the end of the day is taking responsibility to, uh, you know, to understand that whatever happens at the end of the day, you're responsible for. And uh, whether you didn't plan for it, whether you didn't take enough precaution and, uh, and responsibility. And now in the sport of tennis, one of the biggest issues is the length of the season and injuries because the demands are just such, you know, that there's ongoing injuries all the time. So the management of those injuries, you know, which like in my case, I never had any injuries when I played. And when I stopped playing, training, I started getting all kinds of injuries. And then because of the demand of my work, I didn't take care of my body because I had to work. And then, you know, I had to reset for the next day. And I never took the time, you know, of going back and doing my workout, keeping. So, you know, I paid the price. And, so, you know, after two new knees, one new hip, a back fusion. And, uh, you know, I, I'm now... I'm spending here in the Dominican. I'm learning how to walk again. And I spend an hour every day, you know, in the pool in the morning, doing all my exercise. I'm doing, and, you know, it feels great. But I, I finally schedule myself and I finally got to a place where I can have the time to do that. So, you know, it's, uh, it's very, very difficult, especially when you see so many athletes that make it and, you know, uh, fame is so fleeting, you know, uh, I, I remember, you know, four years after Grant Connell had won a major championship, I introduced him, you know, to, to my tennis academy and half the kids said, who's he, you know, like, you know, they don't know. You know? So, so it's the same thing in hockey, you know, like uh, you can have all those rings and everything else, you know, so it, it's adapting and in uh, sport when you finish, there is a lot of, you know, transition into a different way of life where you're not so special anymore, where, you know, life is back to normal. And if you're not ready mentally to deal with that, you know, I've seen a lot of athletes and, you know, I try to help as many as I can. And that's what I tell my coaches, you know, what happens if suddenly you get fired? You know, not because you're bad, but because the new person that comes in doesn't like you. You know, or the star of the team requires that you're fired. I mean, it happened to my partner, who was uh, Doug Burke from Jamaica. He's the national coach for 17 years. He had kids living in his house, everything. He did everything possible for that country. Some guy came in. They wanted to have him on the Davis Cup team. They had to take David, you know, Doug's salary and so forth. So that was good for me. I got him to come back and work with me. But, you know... After putting all those years there, there was no. So you have to really be ready for life after sport. And, uh, you know, it's not always uh, uh, Rome and Paris and London. You know, suddenly you're in Grimsby, Sudbury, Tetford Mine. This is different, you know. Well, you you draw uh, probably a good spot to pivot to, you know, conclusion of. A couple things, uh, you know, a lot of clients we help uh, sell their business and transition to retirement where all of a sudden you don't have an office to go to, you don't have a shop or a manufacturing facility that your key works in. You just literally wake up and you've got this new life. 
where it's you're not you're not on the spotlight. So transitioning through that, I, I see lots of parallels there. Um, you know, I didn't think of tennis, but you are you are losing a lot of points throughout the match to make up a win. And so you said, you know, you're losing 48% of the time. It's getting over that. And that, you know, comes to, you know, some people make uh, interesting investment decisions and maybe a loss or it's real estate or a penny stock or whatever it is, a business venture that get, you've got to get on with it. We've got to address it. It's, it's now reality. We can't dwell on it. We got to move forward. And, uh, and then the value of a coach, do you think any of the, the top ranked players today could get to where they are today without a coach? I think we know the answer to that. And it kind of dovetails on, you know, when you are managing your wealth and your finances that, you know, having a coach has been proven to improve the odds of either, you know, steering you away from danger or helping you maybe look at things, uh, blind spots that you might have, or exposing an opportunity that you may not have, have realized. So Pierre, I, I really appreciate uh, the conversation. I feel like there's a lot of, I got a lot of notes on stories and, and different things that that could be a whole another separate podcast on, on the old That's days. The, but, I'd like, I'd like to add two things based on what you just said, your conclusion. Uh, last summer, I decided to retire from Ace Tennis, which is our brand that is best known. And uh, because I was turning 75 in January 2nd, so I told everybody I was leaving December 31st. I restructured my my whole business, my management team, and so forth. And uh, I went with my wife and my sister north of Montreal and Montreal-Blanc, and I spent a week, and I was going to spend that week uh, with my dog alone on the lake trying to see what the rest of my life was going to be. And as I said to you, I was fortunate. I was fortunate, and I'll get back to that as far as a coach, to have a situation where I could see that I could reach the end of the line without having to worry about anything. But I went, okay, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? And after three days of hugging trees and everything else, I went, oh my God, I'm going to kill myself because I love. To me, it's not work. You know, ne I've never worked in my life. You know, it's been in a sport. So I'm very, very fortunate. And that's why I've revived. You know, we've got seven other, uh, I'm sorry, five other brands, which, you know, I'm developing. And, and you know, I'm enjoying it because I can do it from everywhere. And so that's what I'm going to do the rest of my life. But when you talk about a coach, you're absolutely right. I. I'm fortunate because I have had a great accountant for 35 years and he kind of lives vicariously through my insane life. So he's, you know, a very straightforward, no nonsense guy, you know, and he's guiding me out of trouble. And he always says, well, you should get a finance guy to help you with your finance. And I always resisted. You want to know why? Why? Because because I knew the guy was going to change my way of living. <laughs> <laughs> you have to put that in the bank. What do you mean? What am I going to do? You know, like, what do you mean? I can't buy everybody in the bar a beer. Come on. Yeah. 
Yeah. Like, you know, I had to live big. So, you know, but in retrospect, if I would have done it, wow, 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 what a difference. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I certainly uh, completely, I've told my son, you know, who has some of me in it and uh, him. And I say, you know, please get the accountant, then start putting away, get somebody that can, you know, invest and so forth. You know, my great investment was, uh, you know, I believed in marijuana stocks. Yeah. Yeah. And God, I got so rich and then I got so poor. <laughs> and recently I got rich again. I had Shopify. Now yeah. I got poor again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, that's, you're definitely, uh, if you, if you over, uh, weight in the, in those sectors, then, uh, you, you can feel that. Uh, so I, I appreciate those comments, Pierre. I think it's, uh, it's hugely important. Uh, you know, the mantra that we say on every podcast is, you know, we help people live more of their life now yet be responsible for the future. And I think where, you know, it, it isn't about having a budget, you know, no woman or man wants a budget if you're you know trying to live more of your life, but it's about, am I dropping a little bit of money in a few different buckets? And if there's money left over at the end of the month, we purposely spend it. Whereas the old mantra, and I see it in my older clients where it's save, save, save. Then when you're 65, you'll, you'll magically change your mindset, open the floodgates. You'll have saved more money than the average person. And then that means you're going to be more happy than the average person. But that, that isn't what we believe. And, you know, so it, I think it's, you hit the nail on the head, um, you know, trying to just lean on your team, uh, lean on your team in a, in a way of, uh, understanding your values because people spend their money on certain things, but that the spending usually is tied back. If you're asked the right questions to values and what you value in life. So again, that's for a whole other podcast, but if you can have a good coach, somebody trusts, uh, you'll get a lot more out of life. So thank you, uh, for coming on today. You know, the, I said during the podcast that I'm lucky. I don't want anybody to try to copy the way I did it. And because my son says, well, look at you. And I said, yeah, do you know how much I've suffered and everything else? You know, and not only that, I was French. I was English. I had an MBA. I was national champion. You know, like doors were open for me. Not everybody gets that opportunity. So, right. you know, like unless you're really, really lucky, which I was, I would take a more uh, uh how would I say not cons yes conservative approach but a more thoughtful approach to you know finding a way of doing it the right way and Dusty yeah. if I was younger you'd be my guy <laughs> thanks Pierre I really appreciate that uh, that does mean a lot so thanks okay. and I look forward to our next podcast talk soon if you found this episode valuable share it with a friend if you found this episode super valuable leave us a review on iTunes. It will help us continue to bring you top quality content. For more information on anything discussed on this show, visit www.servicewealth.com. That's service spelled S-E-R-V-I-S-S. -E Any investment topics covered on the show are not investment recommendations, and you should seek professional advice before making any investment decisions. This show was produced by Podigy Podcasts. Thanks for listening.